Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, and welcome to our podcast interview with Michelle Garnett McKenzie, Deputy Director of the Advocates for Human Rights, and Abina Abraham, an organizer in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today, we are going to discuss Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, and Deferred Enforced Departure, or DED, two programs that are being phased out by the Trump administration. We will talk about the nature of the programs, the impact of their termination, and how advocates and volunteers can support clients in this period of transition. Can you give a brief overview for anyone who may not know or needs a refresher about Deferred Enforced Departure and Temporary Protected Status? Well, this is Michelle. Um, temporary protected status is um, actually a form of relief from deportation uh, under the Immigration and Nation- uh, Nationality Act. It uh, has, over the years, uh, applied to many countries. Um, right now, El Salvador, Haiti, Honduras, Nepal, Nicaragua, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, Yemen. Um, we've had, uh, though, TPS for many other countries. And then uh, deferred enforced departure for Liberians has been in place um, off and on, kind of tag-teaming with temporary protected status uh, since 1991. Um, this is uh, actually part of the Immigration Act, and it's able to give people uh, temporary relief from being deported and access to a work permit from periods uh, between 6 to 18 months, um, depending on uh, conditions in the country. Um, deferred enforced departure is not part of the Immigration Act. It's really something that's under the uh, president's uh, foreign policy authority and so stands solely in the president's discretion. Um, But TPS has been part of the INA since 1990. Can you talk about the current status of these programs and um, any current bills that are in Congress, and where where do we go from here? Um, Sure. So um, I can speak directly to the DED. Um, So uh, a few weeks ago, um, on the 31st, I believe, of March, the Trump administration um, announced that they would um, be terminating DED um, and gave a 12-month wind-down period um, for folks to make decisions about what they want to do, um, either adjust to other statuses or create a plan and start to get their documents ready to return to their home countries. Um, and they specifically said that, you know, based on, you know, the foreign relationship that they have with Liberia, they deemed it necessary to give this period um, for folks to be able to go back home. Um, they reviewed, you know, the country conditions in Liberia, and it seemed that everything was stable, there wasn't any war, and so it was time for folks to go back home. And this has taken place, this is part of a pattern of terminations of temporary protected status, um, or TPS, that have taken place over the the past year uh, where we've seen a number of long-term protected countries uh, have a decision made to, uh, to terminate the program um, in uh, some cases, uh, such as El Salvador. Um, this is affecting hundreds of thousands of individuals. Um, in some cases, uh, such as Nepal, it's a much smaller group. Um, but each of these uh, countries are 
um, kind of being reviewed this year with an eye to terminating the protection and giving people uh, an orderly departure period. It is, uh, I think, only one country so far that's been extended. That's South Sudan uh, that's come up um, in the last year. And it really signals an end to uh, something that communities have come to rely on for um, for making sure that they're stable. Um, in the case of Liberian, uh, folks have been here on temporary protected status, or DED, since 1991. Um that's not very temporary, and it's it's really causing uh, dislocation. Um, and I think that's leading to some uh, legislative proposals. Uh, do you want to talk about that, Abina? Sure. Um, so um, since 1999, there's been a bill that's been looming around Congress called the Liberian Fairness Act, which would provide a pathway to citizenship for folks um, with, D- with TPS and DED. Um, unfortunately, the bill has not been successful to make it out of committee. Um, And so advocates this year have decided that, you know, with the ongoing conversation around TPS and other countries um, being put off of these programs, let's join efforts and um, propose um, bills that include both TPS and DED in hopes that with a greater number, they can see the greater impact. Um, So currently, there's two bills that um, activists around the country are supporting, and one of them is called the SECURE Act. Um, and the other one is the American Promise Act. Um, those are two bills that do include a pathway to citizenship for folks with TPS and DED. Um, there, there are people that are still pushing for the Liberian Fairness Act, but unfortunately it's still stalled, hasn't really made much traction since it's been introduced. And with, you know, the election year in Congress not really working full time, um, we're not hopeful that um, we'll get anything on the Liberian Fitness Act, but hope that with the urgency around the large numbers of um, the workforce um, of people on TTS and DED, that potentially they would um, try to take up one of those two bills that I just mentioned. Um, So what what does the termination of these programs mean for those who benefit from them? Um, I mean, I can speak directly. So I've had the the privilege of being able to go back to Liberia um, recently. I was I just got back about two months ago, and um, while people talk about, you know, the progress that's been made in Liberia, for the quality of life that people have been able to enjoy here in the U.S. for over 27 years, um, conditions in Liberia are not suitable for them to return. Um, with the Ebola outbreak, it's caused um, great anxiety with um, people getting quality medical treatment. Um, there's a huge stigma around going to the hospital with symptoms that are similar to that of Ebola and people kind of not wanting to attend to your care because of fear of you um, potentially having the virus, even though the country's been deemed Ebola-free for quite some time. Um, the There's no jobs. Like, people are, you know, doing what they can to get by. And so, like, coming from a place where people are used to a routine of having access to a job, um, they're not going to enjoy that luxury in Liberia. And I believe 40% of um, the economy in Liberia is actually um, from remittances that people send back from here. Um, So lots of folks still have family members back home, and they heavily rely on these remittances. And so when that is gone, it puts a severe, severe um, kink in um, the flow of the economy in Liberia. Um, We have currently a shortage of eggs. Um, There's 
no eggs in the country, essentially, and the eggs that are there are really expensive. Um, and just with the inflation of the U.S. rates, um, folks are not really keen on um, doing a lot of business in Liberia right now until they this new government settles and they kind of see the trend that this government's going to take. And so, I mean, for folks, it's going back to a place that they don't know. They don't have homes. There's definitely a housing shortage in Monrovia. Um, and, again, lack of jobs, lack of health care infrastructure and education. So a lot of the kids that are um, – a lot of the kids or parents that have kids, um, you know, they're not, they know for sure that their kids will not get the quality education that they get here. And they don't have people – not everybody has family members that will be able to take in those kids. And if they're back in Liberia, they can't even financially support their kids here. So there's a lot of factors to how this will devastate them. Yeah, I think this is um, what Abina's talking about is true for so many of the uh, countries that have been on TPS for decades. Uh, This question of remittances is so important. Um, Remittances or the, you know, the uh, support sent back by American working folks to the home countries um, actually gets factored into our foreign aid decisions. So uh, right now, much of the foreign aid to Liberia is actually in the form of Liberians working here and sending money back. Um, and that will be something that will have to be reassessed. Um, the uh, other piece, and one thing that's, that's really struck me uh, as the TPS and DED struggles have gone um, and sort of allied themselves and gone in solidarity with the DACA movement is that in, in a lot of cases, these are like the grandparents, right, of the of the DACA folks. Um, they're people who might have been here and working in the early 1990s um, who are have spent their entire professional careers here um, in our state, in Minnesota, um, with the Liberian community in particular, one really interesting feature is that many people have worked uh, are, are working in the healthcare industry, and there's significant concern that when um, all sorts of Liberians ha- are disrupted from the workforce, removed from the workforce, that's going to impact you know the care in our nursing homes and home health care access and uh, the CNAs in hospitals and even RNs and others in hospitals, uh, that this is, you know, it's going to impact everyone. Uh, so the termination of the programs has a direct and traumatic impact on the people who are registered for them, but it also disrupts their families uh, and uh, and the greater community um, in really intricate ways. So you mentioned earlier that the options for them to prepare for the next step is to either adjust their status or make plans to travel back to their home countries. Um, are there any forms of immigration relief that folks who are at risk of losing their TPS or DED status might qualify for? Absolutely, um, and this is where it's really important for people who are on temporary protected status or deferred enforced departure to start now in figuring out um, what their legal options are. Some of these cases started in the early 1990s. That means um, that 
people may be subject to old um, deportation rules, not to current post-1996 removal proceedings. Um, that opens up different options for people if they were if if they had started the the deportation process and their cases were closed administratively closed. Um, Back in 91, 92, 93, 94, um, any time up through the, the early part of 1996, um, they will, through the early part of 1997, sorry, um, they will be subject to, uh, more generous, um, rules about deportation. They may have forms of, of deportation defenses that aren't available to other people. Uh, people who are facing removal now will have defenses. Um, sometimes those are dependent on length of residence in the U.S. and um, and uh, family ties in the United States and the hardship uh, deportation might cause to U.S. citizen family members. Absolutely, that's going to play into to cases that are, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years old. Um, and then, of course, people um, have been adjusting status um, through marriage um, for people who made lawful entries into the U.S. or who um, had petitions filed for them back prior to 19 or 2001. Um, there is uh, potential um, for adjusting status and going from uh, no status or from uh, temporary protected status into um, permanent residence. Um, either through a family member or through an employer. Uh, so people really need to be looking at this um, on an individual basis and and assessing what their options are um, right away. So in terms of assessing those options, what are some things that, that people should be doing to prepare for the end of these programs in terms of either working on adjusting their status or any other options that may be available? first start is to get a copy of immigration records. Uh, if people haven't really touched their cases for years, uh, make sure they dig out those old records, perhaps uh, get a Freedom of Information Act request filed so that they've got an updated uh, view of their immigration file. Make sure that um, they know whether they were placed in deportation or removal proceedings or not, because that's going to affect their, you know, kind of where the case picks up. Um, cases will kind of resume where they left off. So if somebody had come into the U.S. and applied for TPS and stayed essentially on TPS and DED for, you know, the, the whole duration of their stay here, they haven't, the government hasn't even begun a removal proceeding against them um, and tried to, to deport them. It, other folks may have been at the very end have already been ordered deported and then granted TPS and that's the the last step for them. So they might need to reopen their cases in front of a judge. All of that's going to take time and it's going to take uh making sure that they have a copy of their file. So that's that's the you know very first thing. Um and then it's connecting with qualified legal help that's not um, not predatory. And um, I don't know, Bina, if you've seen any fraud popping up in uh, in TPS and DED communities um, that you've been working with, uh, but we know that's happened um, over the years. Yeah, I mean, people um, 
you know, are going to other people and they're charging them money to help them readjust status. Like we've heard of that happening right now. And so we're just cautioning people to make sure that they're talking to an immigration attorney or somebody who's BIA certified. Um, so what other sorts of preparations should people be making? And are you aware of any tools or resources that can help people prepare for sort of emergencies, worst case scenarios in the case of if they can't figure out a way to adjust their status or if, if someone is detained or deported? Well, we have been, uh, as a, a partner of IMI, have been using the IMI screening tool uh, for uh, years uh, to help people understand their options online. And now the new Make-A-Plan tools have been um, added to that uh, so that people are able to kind of walk through how to plan for their kids, their finances, their homes, um, for uh, what might happen if they're actually facing deportation or if they're detained while de uh, while immigration is reviewing their cases. And um, these tools, the, the IMI screening tool and, and the Make-A-Plan tools, I think um, are really going to be good for the organizers who are working directly with the community so that um, they can they can get people moving, help them take that first step where they might be nervous about seeing a lawyer, um, and, and to assess at the front end um, that they do have some options, um, what those are, and, and what the next steps will be, how to find a, an immigration attorney like Abina said who's either a licensed attorney or a BIA accredited representative who can who can assist them um, as they move forward. These also have been good tools that we've used over the years in in group know your rights presentations um, and in in sort of standing clinics so that people are able to really um, respond and, and kind of control what they can control not be panic-stricken because they don't know what what the answer will be, but find out the answers and move forward. Yeah, and we've also been encouraging people to um, visit their local embassies and consulates and figure out the process for renewing their travel documents um, in case of order of removal um, so that they are not um, in detention for a while because they're trying to get their documents. Yeah, and this is such an important point you make. Uh, the embassies and consulates have a role to play in every one of the D, the TPS or DED countries, um, and connecting with the, that home country government, uh, not just individually, but also um, as you know, for um, organizing is so important. Um, so you mentioned the consulates. Um... Do you know of anyone else who may be able to help those whose, whose protections are about to expire? Um, are you aware of any national organizations that might be able to offer assistance? Um, I'm not aware of any national organizations, um, but what we always encourage people as organizers is, one, to speak with an immigration attorney, um, two, reach out to your employer um, because there may be possibilities for employers to sponsor some of their workers um, with these statuses. Um, and, yeah, and then, like, obviously talk with family members um, so that they know, you know, if, you know, suddenly 
you know, they don't hear from you for a few hours, that they have an ability, that they know that, you know, your status is like this and they need to check certain areas. Yeah, and unfortunately, this is an area of, you know, or a moment when we're doing safety planning with clients um, every day. Uh, like you said, if, I mean, if people are checking in with immigration, making sure that um, they have uh, told somebody of their check-in appointment, that they know the phone number of their family uh, and their attorney, um, write them on your arm if you need to, but that you have that with you. Um, so many of us depend on our cell phones, um, I, you know, to know, <laughs> just click the phone number, um, the contact, and don't know the actual phone number for people are important to us. So make sure that you have that contact information um, and that uh, and you have a plan if detained. Um, but for many people on TPS and DED, uh, we're not at that stage yet. And it's, it's important to remember that um, not everybody is at the end of the the line in terms of their legal cases. Many people will be just beginning and uh, have absolutely good defenses to raise along the way or even things like an, an adjustment of status through a family member. And that's why getting that legal help right away is going to be important. How can advocates and volunteers and community organizers, um, what kind of support can they offer through this transitional period and just in general for immigrants in need? Um, I think the first and far most important things to make sure that we're giving people factual information. Um, like, I think around to when, you know, the administration announced what they're going to do with DED, there's a lot of mixed messages out in the community. So making sure that you're taking the time to read the information correctly and relay it correctly, because these are people's livelihoods that are on the line. And, um, again, just making sure that you're, if you're trying to give legal advice, checking yourself to make sure that you are someone that's licensed to give that legal advice. And if you're not, making sure you're connecting people with the people that are to share those information with people. And also just checking in um, with people and, um, you know, if you know someone has a check-in, like help them get prepared, like Michelle said, put numbers on their wrist, whatever it takes, so that they have a way um, to reach out to people um, if they need to. And also if you're someone who's in a position where your status is not questionable, and you know someone who is and they have a question and you're maybe in a public place, maybe being that person to speak on their behalf so that they don't have to put themselves out there. Yeah, that's a great point uh, that we we tend to, as legal advocates, um, set up these Know Your Rights presentations, um, these big you know group presentations, and that may not be the most comfortable setting or safe setting for somebody to ask questions. So having clear ground rules um, when you're doing those about uh, asking hypothetical questions, getting a proxy to ask the question, um, getting that information out, um, and also meeting people where they are. People may not want to be in a big group setting uh, so that they can get that information. Um, I think another piece that's um, that's really important is to connect in with uh, the sanctuary movement um, as there has been so much organizing around the U.S. around creating sanctuary space for people as nationalities who have had long-term work permission in this country are losing that 
they're going to need support in really practical ways. Um, you know, they may need housing support. They may need food support. They may need to um, make sure that their kids uh, have a, a good um, power of attorney and uh, legal um uh, guardianship established in the case of an emergency. They may, may need uh, all sorts of community support and connecting between um, that outpouring, especially in the religious and faith communities, with uh, this emerging need, um, I think, will be really powerful. Um, and finally, empathy um, and making sure that uh, we're not judging people for not having, you know, fix their status earlier. Um, we all know that temporary protected status um, was exactly that. Temporary protected status was specifically enacted by Congress to be temporary. And it was, uh, there were specific hurdles placed into the enabling legislation, the enacting legislation that prevented people from easily um, having their status changed from uh from temporary protected status to permanence um, or from having any sort of you know, blanket protection made. It's a difficult uphill battle, and people have uh, built their lives here um, on a really, you know, unfortunately very precarious foundation because of the, the tremendous needs they faced. Um, having that empathy out there uh, will be really important. All right. Well, thank you both so much, Um for shedding some light on this and for offering your wisdom. Does any, did either of you have any last words or anything else that you would like to share? Um, I'll just say once again, talk to an attorney and not your neighbor or your church member. Great. Thank you All so right. much for including this in the, in the conversation. Um, unfortunately, we're going to see a few more countries coming up for decisions soon. Um, and the, um, you know, aside from all of the direct support, you know, making sure that TPS and DED aren't left out of any solutions that are uh, potentially put out there by Congress. Uh, we all need to raise our voices. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you.